is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. We're following two major stories that are developing today. The first has a global economic impact that could slam your wallet and maybe leave all of us without jobs. We're talking about the U.S. running up against the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department says it started taking extraordinary measures as the government has reached its legal borrowing capacity of more than $31 trillion. A debt default could tank the worldwide economy, so we are going to go in-depth. We'll look at whether President Biden and House Republicans can reach a deal to avoid this potential disaster and let you know if you should start preparing for the worst. And the other big story, of course, is Alec Baldwin being charged in the fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust in New Mexico. He, along with a weapon specialist, accused of involuntary manslaughter. We'll go in-depth into the impact these charges could have in Hollywood in general and what changes have been made and what uh, and will be made to keep movie and TV sets safer. But we start with hitting the debt ceiling. David Fiorenza is an economics professor at Villanova University. Thank you for joining us, David. Thank you. Appreciate it. So uh, the headlines certainly sound serious. U.S. you know hits its its debt limit. Essentially, if you know the average person who has a credit card would recognize that. I guess is the amount of money you you can spend with your credit card, but on a much much bigger scale. How worried should we all be? How worried are you? Well, I am worried. I wasn't worried a few years ago, but I am worried right now. We uh, continue to grow our debt. And I knew we were through a pandemic, and I realized that there had to be um, stimulus packages that were sent out. But they should have also had some kind of recovery area or some kind of a contingency plan to try to narrow this debt and this debt ceiling. Just because we have a debt ceiling doesn't mean that's not going to go up again and again and again. I think the federal government should act like a local government or a city government and pass laws that say you can't go over a certain amount of money unless you start having some revenues come in to cover those uh, debt. But, you know, one of the big problems we run into in this country is uh, not getting too political about it, but uh, uh, tax breaks for the very wealthy. And then later on down the road, as we see revenues going down, we've got to start talking about tax, uh, uh, about uh, about spending cuts that affect uh, the middle class more than it does anybody else. So how, how do we how do we stem the tide of this? And, and also keeping in mind that the debt ceiling is about money that we already owe, not about future spending. You are absolutely correct. It is all about money that we owe. And I, I've always been amazed when I teach the classes in economics, I tell the students the richest country in the world, and yet we still have people who we who are hungry at night and, and who are living on the street. It shouldn't be that way. Now, look, I'm not here to tax all the large companies at 90%, but there has to be something that has to give. Uh, there, you know, there has to be enough of these loopholes, enough of these deductions. Let's get this thing right. I'm a little bit upset about this. Okay, so let's go to the worst case scenario. We get to, I think it's uh, June, roughly, when, when we would run out of, of money to pay uh, things like uh, Social Security and the military and a whole bunch of other things that we have to pay for, and bondholders, uh, obviously, who, who uh, are owed money by the U.S. government. What happens then if we can't come up with a solution? 
Well, according to the Constitution, if our lawmakers would follow the Constitution, Congress has to authorize any borrowing by the federal government. Um, this goes way back to 1917, um, when the Treasury didn't have to ask any more permission from Congress each time it had to issue debt for all these financial obligations. So I think they really have to sit down and start worrying about what's important. Okay, Social Security is definitely important. Medicare is important. Medicaid is definitely important. Uh, all those kinds of things are important. But what else is not important? Should we be not having as many what I would call grant programs to states and local governments? Should they be fending more for themselves? You take a look at a lot of state governments. They have surpluses, lots of surpluses, and they still depend on the federal government for lots of um, what handouts, if we can say that. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> I just did, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, uh, David uh, Fiorenza, economics professor at uh, Villanova University. Right now, though, back to the uh, U.S. hitting the debt ceiling. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he wants his party to work with Republicans to avoid a debt default. But that puts him at odds with President Biden. Eric Wasson is Bloomberg's congressional reporter. Eric, thanks for being with us. So, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be... Quite a problem, uh, a lot of people anyway think, and, and perhaps you can enlighten us more on that, because at, at this point in this country's history, uh, Republicans and Democrats are probably farther apart than they've been in probably in our lifetimes. How does this get resolved? You know, it's very similar to the 2011 standoff between President Obama and a Republican House uh, at that time. Uh, Obama wanted a uh, clean debt ceiling increase, and Republicans were able to force him to agree to spending caps. So House Republicans feel like they can run that play again, only uh, Democrats have a different view of the 2011 incident and view that was a big mistake. So Biden's digging in saying no negotiation. So, yeah, they really are far apart. Uh, we've hit the debt limit officially, but Treasury can do some extraordinary accounting moves to keep uh, a default from happening until June. So it's going to be months of wrangling in Congress till this gets solved. And, you know, we do this all the time. This keeps coming up and this keeps coming up. And basically, uh, Democrats and Republicans are playing chicken only when the car crashes. It's not their cars. It's ours. So how do we stop this? How do we get beyond this? And are we so politicized now that something as important as the survivability of our economy and the world economy is at stake every time we turn around? Well, there's different ways this could play out. I think Republicans, in their best-case scenario, is they're pressuring Biden to sit down and make an offer, make some sort of compromise negotiations. They're going to do that for a couple of weeks at least. Uh, you know, Then we have the possibility that a Senate gang like Manchin uh, and other moderates in the Senate come up with their own solution. Manchin says, why don't we tie a, tr a trust fund commission to look at Social Security and Medicare and how to uh, solve uh, their insolvency issues and tie that to the debt ceiling increase. If that doesn't work, there is a mechanism by which Democrats and a handful of Republicans could force a vote on a debt ceiling, but there's lots of requirements for a 39-day layover. So that's not a quick fix either. So, you know, there's different ways this could play out. Uh, you know, the, in one scenario, McCarthy just ends up falling on his sword, gets ousted by the ultra-conservatives, and, and the thing passes. But we're a long way from knowing exactly how it's going to play out. Yeah, I was going to say that it, it's not just as it may have been in, in, in the past, perhaps maybe with the exception, I guess, when the— Tea Party uh, movement got involved. Uh, but it's not just Democrats versus Republicans in this particular issue, right? You've got Republicans versus Republicans because of that very radicalized, but, you know, now pretty powerful faction. 
I, I think that's right. And they, they are really, uh, they extracted a promise. That, you know, it took McCarthy 15 ballots to become speaker. He did promise they would not raise the debt ceiling without uh, budget cuts. So he's made this. And he also put in place a rules change where any uh, five uh, conservatives can, can oust them at any time by bringing a privilege resolution to the floor. So, uh, you know, he's kind of at their mercy, at least uh, right now. Uh, but certainly there are people, more moderate Republicans, who don't want to see a default, who are hoping some kind of compromise emerges. Uh, they do feel that, you know, in 15 years we are looking at Social Security running out of its trust funds, so we need to eventually deal with that. Um, but until, uh, you know, the picture is clear that we're going to be in this impasse. So, uh, worst-case scenario, we uh, breach the debt limit, we don't come to an agreement, uh, everything starts to go south. Which side gets the blame the next time there's an election, is it going to be Democrats or is it going to be Republicans? You know, it's uh, we've never reached that situation before, and the economic fall will be so catastrophic, it's hard to say. But from the 2011 experience, we saw that Republicans, even though they uh, caused a U.S. credit downgrade, still retained power and were brought back into control of the House in the 2012 election. Uh, President Obama, though, did re- uh, gain re-election in part by painting Mitt Romney and, and, and Paul Ryan as people who want to slash Medicare. So, you know, it could it could play into to either side. It could benefit Democrats, actually, if Republicans are paying as holding the economy hostage. But again, if we actually did default, I mean, we're looking at there was a 17 percent decline in the S&P 500 with just the threat of a default in 2011. We're looking at a much deeper uh, fall in stock values and, you know, at least a 4 percent cut to GDP if we suddenly had to operate under a balanced budget. But but here's another problem, as I see it anyway, and, and, and tell me what, what, what you think about it, is that you know, the fail-safe mechanism on something like this is supposed to be that at the end of the day, neither Republicans nor Democrats are going to want to inflict uh, harm on the U.S., on the U.S. government, and would come to their senses and come up with something that would make this all work, and they have in the past. But isn't it the case that some of the uh, newly elected Republicans, they have almost a, an explicit aim of making sure the government does not work? I wouldn't necessarily you know, say that. Maybe there's a small handful, five or six, that, that have that nihilistic point of view. But many do feel that we're just spending too much. And their their view is that, you know, we have wasteful spending now and we're going to bankrupt our, our children and, and grandchildren. So I think to give them the benefit of the doubt, that's what they want. Whether or not their tactic makes a lot of sense, holding this hostage is a different story. And really right now, both sides think the other side's bluffing. Uh, you know, just talked to a Republican aide who said, you know, Biden did a deal. With Obama, he's probably going to do a deal again. And, and uh, the White House thinks Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell, are going to blink. So uh, if both sides think the other side's going to blink, we could very well go over the edge. All right. Uh, Eric Wasson, Bloomberg's congressional reporter. Thank you for joining us. Coming up, Alec Baldwin's attorney says the actor is going to fight the charges filed against him in connection with the Rust movie shooting. We'll also look into how the entertainment industry is reacting to this particular case. Right now, though, back to the uh, U.S. hitting the debt ceiling. Clever accounting and maneuvers can hold off a debt default for a while. Uh, That means if it does happen, regular people will have a little time to prepare. And should they prepare? Krista Myers is editor-in-chief of TheBalance.com, which uh, helps people with personal finances. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us today. One of the things I heard was if we do go over the cliff on this, uh, one thing that people should do before it happens, if they can, is pay off their credit cards as quickly as possible. <laughs> is, 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 that, is that one thing we should be doing? 
Yes, 100%. Um, and the reason for that is because if we do go into default, essentially what happens if you go into default, your credit score essentially goes down. Well, the U.S. also has a credit score. It's very, very good, but it won't be for that much longer if we do essentially just stop paying all of our bills and all of our creditors. Um, and so that's going to cause interest rates to go up. And our interest rates are in a way tied to the interest rates of the of the treasury. Um, and so our interest rates will also start to go up. So your credit card debt is going to get even more expensive. So you are going to want to pay that down now before something like that happens. So even though mortgage prices, for example, are high uh, compared to a few years ago, is this then the next few months between now and June, say, a good time if you're thinking to uh, buy a house to go ahead and take the plunge? Well, if you want to buy a house, um, th that's a little bit trickier, right? Because we do still have rates going up anyway, even if we didn't have this whole debt ceiling um, going on right now, because the Federal Reserve is planning on raising interest rates anyway. So interest rates are already set to go up. They have also been on the decline. They were up over 7% in November. They're now 6.15%, at least on a 30-year conventional mortgage. So they have declined. So it is a time for you to want to go and right now essentially go out and secure that mortgage. But I wouldn't say that you shouldn't buy a mortgage later on just because those interest rates are going to go higher, because at least that is an asset that you're going to hold and you could refinance later. But it is something definitely to think about. If you're holding on to the cash and you want to buy and you're thinking, well, interest rates are going to go down going forward, they definitely won't if the U.S. Uh, doesn't actually raise the debt ceiling. And since we haven't been through this before, uh, we've seen experts. I think every time we've come close, we've had the experts and economists basically on our TVs with their hair on fire. Uh, but if it <laughs> does happen, should uh, we as consumers have our hair lit on fire, too? Uh, yes, I normally am not a person that likes to cause panic or alarm. Um, and I don't want to do that this time either. But what I will say this. The U.S. government, the Treasury Department itself, on its website, if you decide to go and look up what is the debt ceiling, what's the debt limit, they literally describe not raising the debt ceiling and going into default as, I'm, I'm going to quote them here, an economic catastrophe. And I don't think I ever hear the federal government using such uh, language describing anything that could ever happen to the United States. So I think that really just shows you how big a deal it is if we do actually go over the cliff, so to speak, and allow the U.S. to default on its debt obligations. As you mentioned, it has never happened in history. It is not something that we want to find out now, especially as we're already consider considering possibly tipping over into a recession with our economy right now, with everything the Federal Reserve has been doing to really try to increase unemployment, slow the economy down. This could be the worst time, really, for us to essentially default on our debt and on our obligations, and people will 100% be impacted. So talking about people impacted, even in the Great Depression, there were people who did quite well. In fact, people who really made lots of money. There are always winners and losers. Who would be the winners in this? There's got to be some. I mean, I find that so hard to even think about uh, who the winners could be. I'm sure there's going to always be another side of the equation. And when it comes to investments, if honestly, the winners would be people that are start that would start to bet against the U.S. economy. Um, if you start shorting the market, for example, because you're essentially betting that the market will go down, uh, those would be people that could go out and make money. If you start hedging your bets against the strength of the U.S. economy, which 
typically has not always worked too well because the U.S. economy has been so strong. Um, of course, people make tons of money from shorting the market, from essentially betting that a certain stock or asset is going to go down. And those are the people that are going to go that are going to do well here. Um, but even if you're not an investor, I think really the focus here needs to be on the folks that are not going to do well. If you get a social security payment, you're not going to if we default. If you're someone who is a veteran and gets veterans benefits, well, you're not going to if we go into a default. If you are someone who is uh, on Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you are also not going to be receiving some of your benefits. Already, the Treasury Department has started to enact some extraordinary measures, as they are calling it. And one of those extraordinary measures that they came out with today was saying that they're not going to fully invest in some retiree funds and the and the health fund of postal um, postal workers that are now retired. So they're already starting to be impacted. If you work for the federal government, it is the largest employer in the United States. You won't be getting paid going forward. Mm. So there's a lot of people that are going to be in, that are going to be impacted by this if it does happen. All right. Thank you so much. Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief of TheBalance.com, helping people with uh, personal finances. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. Prison time could be coming for actor Alec Baldwin if he is convicted in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the Rust movie set in October of 2021. Baldwin and the film's armor are now facing involuntary manslaughter charges that could land him in prison for up to five years. The movie's director was hurt in the shooting as well. Baldwin's attorney putting out a statement saying they will fight the charges and win. With us is legal analyst and L.A.-based attorney Chris Melcher, who represents celebrities and family law cases. Chris, thanks for being with us. The uh, the D.A. in New Mexico, tough call, do you think, for, for what they're doing? Well, she certainly took her time uh, in the special prosecutor making the decision. But uh, this is what I had expect to occur, because when you look at the uh, safety violations that happen on this set, uh, and they were pretty much every rule that was violated. Alec Baldwin um, ultimately took the word of an unqualified person that this gun was safe and took it in his hand, cocked the hammer, pointed it at Helena and the director, and the gun went off and we know what happened. So it's really not a surprise to me that he is being charged with manslaughter. Is it because of his role also as a producer on the film? You know, sometimes in Hollywood, they, they give an actor or producer credit as part of the package to, to pay them. Uh, but in this case, did Alec Baldwin have uh, real uh, responsibility here? He does. Under the industry guidelines for use of firearm in a set, it says that the producer bears the ultimate responsibility for safety, and that's delegated then down to the prop master and to the armorer. So Alec, as a producer, bears that responsibility. He's also a very experienced actor who has admitted that he's used firearms on the set over and over again. And every one of those times, I would imagine that they followed the rules and showed that the gun was not loaded with real bullets. And this time he did not insist on that safety check. Uh, it was never performed. And that's what, in my mind, makes him reckless because he took somebody's word for it. And we just know as common sense, we don't take somebody's word that a gun is unloaded. OK, what's his defense? His defense is going to be that, hey, I'm just an actor. I'm not a firearms expert. This other guy, uh, the first assistant director who who should have never been touching the gun, uh, by the way, but said it was cold and I relied upon that. 
He's also going to argue that he never pulled a trigger. Uh, in an interview uh, he gave earlier, he said that he cocked the hammer and then the gun just went off spontaneously. So we're going to see a battle of firearms experts over whether that particular gun had been damaged or modified and could just go off by cocking the hammer rather than pressing the trigger. Now, how does it come into play? You know, actors sometimes have reputations, and there are uh, a lot of people who love Alec Baldwin, think he's great, but there are a lot of people who think uh, he's he's kind of an SOB, and they don't like him, and they're going to hear about this and think, yeah, he should go to prison, and he did wrong, and maybe he even deliberately tried to kill her. All that uh, politics of the issue uh, aside, will his reputation play into the case, and will that affect uh, decisions made by a jury or a judge? Well, in jury selection, they're going to screen out, you know, whether anyone has any particular uh, feelings about Alec Baldwin. Uh, Of course, most of them probably be familiar with his career as an actor. You know, the way I come down on that is, uh, I mean, he is devastated, uh, you know, by this. It's it's, unimaginable what, you know, he is going through. Um, And so I, I don't. Um, think that he's going to come across badly to the jury. I think he would come across as being remorseful and genuine in that respect. But in that interview earlier, he had it was used a lot of bravado about, like, I will never be charged. I did nothing wrong. And if he comes across like that, it's going to be very unlikable to the jury. I know that almost every attorney that I've ever talked to would recommend their client, insist that their client not take the stand. Does Alec Baldwin, he's trained as an actor. He knows how to communicate effectively with an audience slash jury in this case. Does that change the calculus? Well, that's a great question, Charles. I think, you know, since he's given a statement previously, it probably would indicate that he would take the stand and testify. You know, the difference between being an actor is you got a script and you got retakes. You don't got a script and you have no retakes at trial. I I do anticipate that he would he would testify uh, just to try and give his point of view out there and try and, you know, kind of humanize himself um, and, and to show like, hey, I, I didn't mean to do this. Uh, I think, though, earlier on, he would have been much better served by not saying anything because all the statements that he has made will come back and be used against him if they're inconsistent with his trial testimony. Do you want to go on the record and make a prediction how it's going to shake out? Sure. My prediction is he is going to take a plea bargain on the negligent handling of a firearm and do no jail time for that offense and that uh, the armor um, will suffer much greater consequences uh, because she she ultimately should should never have left that gun there unattended and she may do some jail time. But does he get off if that happens under this sort of uh, theory that we're, we're exploring simply because he's famous? Well, it, it, the problem is, is that we have a relatively small prosecution office in New Mexico. This isn't being, you know, one of our celeb uh, criminal cases in downtown L.A. They had to get special funding for this. There's going to be a battle of experts between uh, firearm experts, I would imagine, over the condition of that firearm. Uh, he will have the best uh, and brightest attorneys that money can buy coming into that courtroom. So, uh, yeah, it does make a difference, unfortunately. Uh, and I think, though, that if he took responsibility and said, look, I, I I was reckless, I will take a plea to something, that might be enough for the prosecution to um, resolve the case. As they said in their statement is, is that they're not going to play favorites and no one's above the law. And what that indicates to me is they can't walk away from this case. They've got to get something from him. And I think he could make that plea bargain 
and avoid jail time. All right. Thank you so much, uh, legal analyst and L.A.-based attorney Chris Smelcher. Well, it was the gunshot that ricocheted around Hollywood after Helena Hutchins was killed and the director was hurt on the Rust set in 2021. The entertainment industry suddenly started asking itself about safety and using real guns on sets. And now the charges have been filed against Alec Baldwin. That's going to send some shockwaves to the industry, especially for uh, those who deal with props and firearms. With us is longtime prop master and armorer Dutch Merring. He is the chief instructor for the PropGunSafety.com here in L.A. He runs a workshop on prop gun safety that started in response to the shooting. Thank you so much for joining us. So what was the first change uh, that that you made that you think should be made industry-wide? Well, it's become a much more thorough process where the crew in general wants to be more observant of what's happening with guns when they're handled on set. Um, We clearly need more standardization in training and processes industry-wide. And part of that divide is between whether you're in the union or in the non-union world of working, uh, whether training is offered at all. So that's why we built this program so that we can get some Something across the board, some standardized training, get everyone on the same page for safety. Why even use real guns on a set? Uh, I mean, nowadays you could use a plastic gun, a toy gun, and make it look real and use computer graphics to simulate the uh, the flash of a gun if that's what the director wants. Why not just do that? Then nobody can get hurt. Well, you know, our job as prop people and armorers is to create an environment that is as realistic as possible for the actors so that the actors can play fully and fully immerse themselves in that space and time and character. And so whether that's a time bomb or a knife or a wedding cake, we provide something that is as realistic as possible, yet at the same time safe. And when an actor interacts with a toy gun and has to fake recoil or fake operating the action or loading it, it takes them way out of that role. And also the audiences are growing more sophisticated and they notice the difference between a real firearm acting on camera and and something that's been you know fixed in post as they will. And it's enormously expensive to add gunfire digitally frame by frame to a gun or multiple guns firing in a scene, something that we've done safely for 100 years in Hollywood. But even the cases where, let's say, uh, we're not going to put uh, a real bullet in the gun to get some verisimilitude there, but when we use blanks, uh, blanks are dangerous too. Tell us about that. So we have a very uh, strict set of safety protocols when working with blanks. Generally, there's, you know, five to 20 foot safety radius in front of the gun, depending on how, what kind of a load, whether it's a full load, half load, et cetera. And we block out a scene so that at no point does an actor point a gun as an, at another human being either during the take at other actors or at any crew that might be passing by. So we're very careful to set the stage and rehearse again and again until we know that everyone's comfortable with what we call a blocking and re- rehearse it. And then when we go to film, we cheat it for camera. So we'll, we'll, we'll make the gun perhaps point slightly toward camera and away from another actor. And it actually looks better to a camera lens, yet it, it, it's safe for the other actor. So we do have an elaborate set of processes to make this happen. You know, we choreograph major guns gunfights day in and day out, and they look great and they're safe. But am I imagining it? And maybe I am, and that might be because films are successful at what they do. But are there films where, you know, one character actually has a gun that goes off at pretty much point blank range? It it doesn't appear as if they would have the, the, the spatial distance to have it on a different angle. 
Right. What we do, I mean, we have an answer for each of these dilemmas. You know, we've been doing this so long. And oftentimes, if we, we do something that's like a suicide or an assassination, where a gun's very close or right up to another person or another part of their body, we will give them a fully plugged barrel, but it still fires blanks. So it gives you the action. It ejects the shells out the side. The smoke comes out the top, but the front of the barrel is completely safely plugged. And I'll show my actors. I'll test that on my own self. I'll, I'll put it to a piece of paper and fire it. No hole. I'll put it to my forearm and fire it, show that it's perfectly safe, and we'll go through all the ropes with something. We, we do have a way to accommodate real guns in almost every scenario. Okay, let's say you were on the set of this film, Rust, on the day that Alec Baldwin is going to be filmed, uh, taking the shot, and you're going to check that gun to make sure it's safe. What specifically do you check for? What does it look like, and how do you know it's safe? And describe that for us so that everyone understands. We first and foremost check the barrel for any obstructions on any blank gun so that if there is blank fire, which is energy coming out the barrel, if there was any material in there, it would be pushed out. So we clear the barrel and make sure the barrel is clean. And then if it's a revolver, we check each of the six or however many cylinders for debris uh, or a semi-automatic. We check the magazine in the barrel. And then we will load in the number of blanks we're going to fire that are required for that take of that scene. And if it's a semi-automatic, for example, we may need to put a dummy round in first so that the gun fires and then closes back up and goes to what we call battery. And it looks like it's ready for the next shot. And if it's a revolver, it's very often we'll put in dummy rounds, which look just like real rounds, but they have no gunpowder and no functioning primer. We'll put those in each of the cylinders to what we say dress the gun so that when you look toward the front of the gun, you'll see it looks legitimate as though there's real rounds in there. But each one of them is entirely fake and inert. All right. Thanks so much. That is uh, Dutch Merrick. He's a prop master and armor and chief instructor for PropGunSafety.com here in L.A. That's going to do it for In-Depth today. Uh, Charles, did you drop your phone? Are you okay? Yeah, no, no. I, I just... Okay. You can right. hear that, can't you? Simply yeah, I just want to make sure it. that that was not special effects. No, no, no. That was a, a, a fully loaded uh, bottle of Purell. There you go. All right. Yeah. We're going to clean that up and we'll do another KDX In-Depth.